0: Good morning, I'm Randy Buckwalter, one of the elders serving you here at Redeemer, and I have the honor of sharing with you the scripture text that Ross will be using for his sermon this morning. This week we will continue our series in Romans 8, and today the focus will be on verses 12 and 13. As is our tradition, and if you are able, we'd ask that you rise in honor of the reading of God's word. Romans 8, 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Thanks be to God for his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. You may be seated. Hopefully God will take us even higher this week as we study. So would you pray with me before we begin? Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would send the same Holy Spirit that inspired this word many years ago to open our hearts today to its truth again, as it is still just as relevant today. Would you please cleanse the palates of our hearts of apathy, cynicism, or rebellion so that we may really be hungry for this bread of life that feeds our souls, nourishes our hearts for your work, and fills us with the joy that is our strength. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I recently saw a list of the top ten easiest security guard jobs. Any idea which one is labeled the least dangerous or threatening? The answer is a museum security guard. And it made sense. While they are definitely needed, I'm guessing that the last time you heard about a serious incident at a museum was in a movie. The Bible calls us to guard our hearts with all vigilance. It uses the imagery of a battlefield to describe the fight for our spiritual growth. We, however, often treat our job to engage in spiritual warfare with the intensity of a museum security guard, which again is a much needed role in our society, but it just doesn't make for a good metaphor for spiritual warfare. The threat is more minimal and the job is is much lower stakes. But here in the middle of Romans 8 is another reminder to us that spiritual growth is much more like the front lines of a battlefield than the confines of a security booth. And the battle is everywhere. It's in our homes, it's at work, with friends and neighbors, in the morning when we get up, and in the evening as we wind down for sleep. Our sinful flesh never ceases to try and steer us away from Christ. So Paul is very aware of this, we know. He had just outlined in chapter 7 how much he fails to do the things that he wants to do because of sin. And here, he is calling us to keep up the good fight. If you remember the passage immediately before this that Dan preached on last week, Paul vividly outlined for the Romans and for us that the Spirit of Christ is living within us with immense power and presence. And now he's going to begin showing us what it means, what that means for everyday life. And his message here, I think, can be organized, the message of these two verses can be organized around these two questions, which help us in our spiritual fight. Who are you serving and how do you keep Jesus on the throne? I think those are two questions that help us unpack these verses. So first of all, who are you serving? The great theologian Bob Dylan once said, you're going to have to serve somebody. I don't think he realized how biblical he was being in that moment. He's striking at a core aspect of what it means to be human. I think we as Americans especially can live under the illusion of self-ownership. Think of commercials that have to where you have to have this or that or look a certain way. Parents are promised their children's future success if they will only purchase the newest educational video and attend every extracurricular sporting activity. From the clothes we wear to the food we eat, the reality is that convention, society, and a complex of other competing forces functionally can own us. We're owned by our possessions, owned by those around us, owned by people we have never met but who exert incredible power over our lives in some of the most subtle and sinister ways. The question is not if we will be owned, but to whom we belong and serve. And Paul established this reality earlier in Romans chapter 6, saying we are either mastered by sin or mastered by Christ. He then urges the Romans to not let sin reign in our hearts. So there's no neutrality in life, no ultimate self-ownership. We're always mastered. It's just about who we are mastered by. And he's returning to that principle here in verse 12. It starts out with, So then, or therefore, which should always get our attention as a reader. Paul has just wonderfully outlined how we have the Spirit of Christ living inside of us, full of resurrection powers, as was preached last week. But Paul is now going to show us what this means. He then says, Brothers, which of course in that day implied sisters as well. That's just the language they used in that culture. And this is another important word in this passage. Paul only kind of pauses and says brothers only a few times in the book of Romans. And so it's an intimately pastoral moment for him in talking to his church. He's wanting them to see his passion behind the point he's about to make as well as his love for them and saying this to them. So Paul is wanting the Roman church to slow down here as they read this next part and really zero in. And then he says in the rest of verse 12, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And that word debtor, what does that mean? It's it's not as much here talking about needing to pay a certain amount to be made right with someone, but it's here more communicating the idea of ownership or mastery, which Paul had established earlier. He's saying they are not slaves to the flesh to follow its demands. And of course, Dan unpacked last week that flesh here is talking about living according to the values of the world and rebellion to God. So Paul, I think, is brilliant here in what he's doing. Before he gets super practical, in verse 13, he starts with the heart, the control center of our lives, asking who is your heart oriented towards? Who do you feel indebted to? Paul's goal here is to unveil what sin really is. It's slavery. It's more than just particular behaviors. It's much bigger than that. It's actually service to a master whose end goal is our eternal death. It's not just disappointing. It's even dangerous and ultimately deadly. And notice the grammatical awkwardness of verse 12. Paul doesn't complete his thought. He begins by saying, So, we're not debtors to the flesh to which you'd think he'd eventually say, but we're debtors to the spirit, which is definitely implied there, but he doesn't say that. And why is that? I think it's because he wants to emphasize the folly of serving the flesh. Get, get them and get us to see how ridiculous it is that we would go back to our old deadly master barking orders at us. I think John Owen's prayer many years ago illustrates this idea very well. This is a prayer he'd sometimes pray after he'd kind of catch himself in sin. He'd say, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return I make to the Father for his love, to the Son for his blood, to the Holy Spirit for his grace? Do I thus requit the Lord? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash? What can I say to the dear Lord Jesus? Do I account communion with him of so little value? Shall I endeavor to disappoint the very purpose of the death of Christ? What a convicting prayer. Friends, sin is much more than breaking God's law, it is breaking God's heart. But we are all busy serving something. Though our true master and our Lord is Christ, we quickly serve our own vision of the good life, our bank account our peers, our careers, our possessions, our passions. All good things in themselves, but terrible masters. So who are we serving today? That's a great question to ask constantly in our lives, especially when we're caught up in sin. Who am I serving now? Who am I living for? Who is my heart aiming? Where is my heart aiming my whole life? Whose kingdom am I trying to build? It can be a life-saving question. Does my, and more questions like this, does my grasp of the gospel leave me in a place of gratefulness and indebtedness, asking how can I possibly respond to your grace? And if, if not, maybe apprehending and, and discerning the gospel more deeply. Am I able to discern how much more worthy a master Christ is than the flesh? All these questions are, are so helpful in our spiritual growth. This is such a good starting point in our fight against sin, and I'm so glad that Paul starts there. But then he gives another side of the issue. And the second question this passage deals with is, how do you keep Jesus on the throne? Uh, If we've just established that we can struggle serving masters that are really not our masters, then the next question is, how do we keep Jesus there? So Paul gets more practical as the passage continues in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He had begun by reminding his people that they have been freed from the flesh and are no longer slaves to it. He now reminds us and them what it's going to take to keep Jesus on the throne. Earlier in Romans chapter 6, he had stated a similar warning. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You see the mastery language there? But here in Romans 8, he gets more gory. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So how do we keep Jesus on the throne of our hearts? You may not like the answer. It's through warfare. Paul is here giving a call to arms, calling us to engage in an all-out battle with our sin. So what does this mean? What does it mean to put to death the deeds of the body? First of all, what it doesn't mean. Two things of what it doesn't mean. By putting the death, the deeds of the body, he's not saying that we can get rid of sin completely. The Christian has died to sin, but that does not mean sin has died in him. There's still indwelling sin. And Sinclair Ferguson writes, what has changed is not sin's presence within our hearts, but its status. It no longer reigns and our relationship to it. We are no longer its slaves. So it's kind of grass we've got to keep mowing until Christ comes, so to speak. It's important to say that putting our sins to death also doesn't mean just suppressing your sin, just putting it to the side like it'll stay there in the corner. No, it means getting rid of every part of it. So then what does it mean then to put to death the deeds of the body? Well, first of all, what are the deeds of the body he's referring to here? If we look in Galatians 5, we we get an example of what he probably means. Galatians 5 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. We haven't seen much of that lately, have we? Envy, drunkenness, and I love this part. And things like these. Just a nice short list for us. So what does it look like, then, to put these things to death? Let me just list a few examples of of what it can look like using sort of warfare language. One way to kill sin is to stab it. What do I mean? Well, what is the Bible called? One of the things the Bible is called is a double-edged sword. And then... What else does the Bible say about God's word? It says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not what? That I might not sin against you. And so the Bible is such an incredible resource in fighting sin. It, it almost is like it stabs it and can kill it as a sword. This is why Bible study is such a central part of our life here at Redeemer, either through encouraging personal Bible study or or You know, studying the Bible in our smaller groups, as well as every Sunday coming together around God's word uh, because it's so important for us in our fight against sin, and it's such a weapon. But also stabbing it through prayer, through through communion with God, and asking for God's help. Another way to kill sin is to expose it. Sin is nocturnal. It can't survive in the light. When, When we bring sin into the light, into the open, um, it, it loses its power, and we do this through confession, confessing our sins to God and, and to one another. Uh, sin cannot stand. Sin hates confession. Sin also hates good questions. You know, Good questions are another way to expose it, either asking ourselves or, or someone else, asking us questions that can begin to really unravel our, our sinful behavior. And sort of the flip side of that is, is getting to the heart. The other side of that coin is you know, exposing it by really getting to the heart of sin. I think when I see that phrase, put to death your sin, one of the things I think of is, is really getting underneath it and uprooting it. It's, we're not just supposed to, you know, use a weed whacker in our fight with sin. No, we got to uproot it. We need to pull it out from the roots. So for example, you know, if there's maybe a problem with money in your life, what's, what's underneath that? Maybe it's a problem of control. And money gives you this sense of control when, when we are to trust God with our lives. So stabbing it, exposing it, and finally suffocating it. That's another way to kill sin is to suffocate it. Death by asphyxiation. Jesus says this in the Gospels. If your eye causes you to sin, what? Gouge it out. And, and it's kind of a metaphor for this idea that if there's something in your life that really is always leading you to sin, to try and take it out of your life. Sort of structuring our lives to not allow for sin to enter in, to not give it breathing room. So for example, maybe a certain app on your phone uh, can lead to sin more than righteousness. And and maybe it's time to either delete it or to take a break from it for a while and maybe give your brain time to sort of rewire its relationship to whatever it is, to relate to it more in a healthy way. And a final thing to remember in killing sin is is that often sin has a slow death. It's not always instant. And we can get discouraged reading this verse about besetting sins in our lives or lives of those we love. Sometimes killing sin can take a long time. And of course, any sin we kill will always come back. But we can have confidence that the power, that its power can keep dwindling the more we experience victory in whatever area. And also we need to remember that while this is something we are called to do, to be killing sin. This is not something we are called to do on our own. Look at what Paul says. He says, By the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. The Spirit is the fuel for this endeavor. Even the strongest and most powerful turbocharged engine is nothing without fuel. So from the most disciplined and diligent and driven among us to the most laid back and maybe even lazy among us here, we are all on equal playing field as far as our spiritual growth is concerned. We are all dependent upon the spirit to grow in Christ. So just a quick example is while the Bible, as I've said, is a two-edged sword, it's the sword of what? It's the sword of the spirit. It's the spirit ultimately working with God's word that brings about growth and change in our life. You know, it says even the devil knows the scriptures and shudders. But we are to use the, the, the word with the spirit. And so kind of going back to this general idea of using the spirit, the spirit empowers our victory over sin through things like prayer. So often what mortification looks like for me is actually not that complicated. God, take this lustful thought out of my head. God, help me get rid of that desire. God, help me quit envying this person and start loving them. Also, the Spirit works through the Word, as we've already said, but also through community. You know, we are temples of the Holy Spirit individually, but the Bible also says collectively as God's people, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And notice this verse is in the plural. He's saying, you all be killing sin. There's this, sort of this community implied. Our walk with God is a community project. We are designed to flourish the most spiritually in community with other believers, I can't tell you how many people I've seen begin to really start experiencing growth in a particular sin habit when they brought someone else or a group into that struggle and had them pray for them and process it with them and maybe even hold them accountable in a certain area. This can be through friendship with someone or a group or even through counseling sometimes. So how do we keep Jesus on the throne of our life? that we serve him and find life. It is by the spirit putting to death the deeds of the body. And in doing this, do you realize that we are fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy? We live in an era that the Old Testament people of God longed for. When God's spirit would be poured out on all his people and we would begin walking in his ways more closely. And what a tragedy when we take this for granted and we don't harness and we don't, be, we don't live into the power of the Spirit for our flourishing. This passage, Romans 8, 12 to 13, is such an important passage to the entire arc of the Bible. God has been on a mission since the fall of humanity to bring back blessing into this world, if you think about the original promise to Abraham. And his son has taken care of the biggest part Of that by dying for our sins and reconciling us back in relationship with God but the story isn't over yet and Christ has given us his spirit and entrusted us with mop-up duty as it were in the rest of the world to continue bringing his blessings farther up and farther in the mission of God is at stake thus understandably evil is throwing the kitchen sink at our hearts and lives to prevent this but God loves us too much to let us languish in the folly of our sins. So he calls us into battle with him and gives us the resources to join him in the fight as far as the curse is found. So church, let's keep fighting the good fight. God has given us the power. Let's see how fast this horse can run. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the seed of your word that has just been sown in our hearts. We pray that our hearts would be like the good soil, that you would help plant it deeply into our lives, that it would bear fruit. God, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for you have willed your truth to triumph through us. Lord, would you help us live into that reality, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.